When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, on Instagram at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. As we gather in the chapel here, in old jail. There has been conflict in Northern Ireland since the English conquest of Ireland in the 16th century and the subsequent Nine Years' War that saw the confiscation of Irish land in Ulster by the English Crown, land that was then occupied by English-speaking Protestant settlers. Yet all I want in this dark place is to have you here with me. Over the centuries that followed, various conflicts were fought between British Protestants and Irish Catholics, including the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, the Williamite Jacobite War, the County Armagh Disturbances, the Irish Rebellion, the merging of Great Britain and Northern Ireland into the United Kingdom in 1801, the Home Rule Crisis, the Easter Rising, the Irish War for Independence, Partition and the Border Campaign, which kicked off the Troubles in the late 1960s and lasted until the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Although the IRA only officially declared an end to its campaign in 2005. During the three decades of the Troubles alone, 3,254 people were killed and more than 50,000 were maimed or injured in more than 36,900 shooting incidents and 16,200 bombings and attempted bombings. Violence has begun to spark again in recent years since Brexit and the perceived threat to the peace treaty by border regulations between the UK and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the European Union. Small moon linger. They 
take me out at dawn, I will die. John Jake Burns was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland on the 21st of February 1958 and grew up in the Ballysillan area on the outskirts of the city during the border campaign and the start of the Troubles. Much like the boys in the undertones, Burns and his friends grew up accustomed to living in a battleground and had no idea life could be less violent and dangerous. In fact, Burns remembers it being quite boring especially because no bands would ever come to the city due to the continual threat of violence, let alone that the security gates surrounding the city centre were locked after 6pm every evening. Burns' mother was a seamstress and his father was a machinist in a textile machinery factory and steel foundry. His socialist views rubbed off on young Jake. Music was also a big part of Jake's early life. Burns said in an interview with Spin.com in January 2021, I first wanted a guitar and to play when I was about 12 years old and saw Rory Gallagher playing with his band Taste on local TV. Prior to that, I'd been like most young kids when it came to pop music. I liked what was in the chart. I was particularly a big fan of Motown Records, it seemed like most of my collection, such as it was then, was on that label. However, seeing, and more importantly hearing, taste changed my world. That guitar tone literally stopped me in my tracks. I really mean that. I was walking out of the room when they started playing Morning Sun, and I froze. was that? And how was he doing it? I sat back down and within 10 minutes or so had decided I wanted to be Rory Gallagher. Most of my friends were a couple of years older than me and were into what was referred to as underground music at the time. So I was listening to Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Jethro Tull, while my real contemporaries were living on a diet of T-Rex and Gary Glitter, which I considered kids music. Rory was definitely the first influence, and, and that was, you know, it was, it was one of the, I think I was about 12, 13 when I saw him, and I pretty much decided that's what I wanted to do. However, I also realised very quickly, once I got the first guitar, I realised I was never going to be good enough to do, you know, to be the guy on his own, right out the front, and I, I never really wanted to be. I realised very early that I wanted to be part of a band, mm -hmm. I wanted, that was really, you know, where I was happiest. In the mid-1970s, Burns founded a band called Highway Star, a covers band named after a Deep Purple song, in which he sang and played guitar, alongside some friends from the Belfast Boys Model School, Henry Clooney on guitar, Gordon Blair on bass, and Brian Falloon on drums. I was forever, like, dragging schoolmates into, let's form a band, you know, you can play the bass, let's be in a band. None of us had played instruments, I was asked to play drums, never hit a drum in my life, um, so it really all kicked off from there. 
I met, funny enough, met Jake Burns at school the first day of uh, term of 1970. And uh, he had a guitar, and I'd never thought about playing guitar, but not went to his house at lunchtime, and you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. As you do, listen to records. And I thought, I want to get one of those. Um, this would have been September. And uh, I got a guitar for Christmas. Um, and the funny thing is, my dad said to me, I'll only get you this if you learn how to play it. <laughs> now it's 2011 and I'm still trying, you know, but um, it's, uh, that was it. And I always loved music, but never in my life thought of playing it. Um, and then Jake and me, as we became friends, we, we were in various school bands that were just for fun. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think we ever played. No, we never played a game. We used to just make names up. There was the the BC band, which was Burns Clooney, like, and that was you know, a oh, great name. Yeah. Um, and that was it. I mean, after that, we went on to form Family Star, which was a really bad. Well, it was a rock band, obviously with the name like Highway Star. I mean, we did free by 1977 the young musicians had begun to fall out of love with the endless guitar solos of metal bands and the indulgence of prog rock and had begun focusing on songwriting and the messages that could be conveyed through simpler songs They began listening to bands like Dr. Feelgood, Eddie and the Hot Rods, and the singer-songwriter Graham Parker. And I remember them hearing um, new rules by the Damned and stuff like that. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this is just so much better than this is good play. And I know that's not cliche, I heard punk enough, but that's what happened. We were doing a gig in uh, a place in the centre of Belfast. A place called Mooney's, and um, I'm trying to get Jake to put in some of this stuff. Um, Adding hot rods, yeah, the damned. I mean, there wasn't a lot around, but Adding hot rods live at the marquee and stuff. And uh, of course, Jake was like, I kept saying that this, this, you have to listen to this because this music's really good. Um, and Jake wouldn't listen to it. And by this stage, you're talking probably six months later, so I think the first Damned album was the first Clash one was definitely out. Um, so I would be bringing him the, the Clash album and saying, listen, listen to this, keep listening to it. And all he ever said was, it's the biggest load of whatever I've ever heard. Um, and that was hard because I wanted to play it. He didn't. He wanted to stick with, with the older stuff. Um, and I managed to keep bringing up, I used to go to Jake's house all the time and listen to music, so I would be bringing this stuff up. This, 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 this. So I left it with him for a couple of days and he, he obviously eventually gave it a listen and didn't, you know, approach it with the I already don't like this. Um, and what is it? It really was what decided then that this is, this is what I want to play and I managed to get him into the, the same frame of mind. Yeah. 
when punk happened in like 76, 77, I was really bored with all the all of that sort of earlier heavy metal stuff. And you know, I'd, be, I'd been impressed by all the flash guitar players and all that, but it was just, you know, I, I kind of felt that people were losing sight of the song and they were losing sight of the, the excitement and the thing. So when I heard the first punk bands, I was kind of a natural convert, you know, it was like, it felt to me like, well, this is exactly what you know the music business has needed. It's needed to sort of kick up the backside for some time. And I thought it was just going to be that. I thought it was going to be like a short, sharp shock. And I heard the Ramones, I heard the Pistols, and I heard the Damned. And I thought, this is great. But, you know, I don't really see it lasting more than about six months. But in that six months, hopefully it'll shake the world up a bit. And then I heard The Clash. And uh, when I heard them writing songs about their lives and about the, the fact that they had sort of no opportunities, they had no, you know, basically, I mean, even the, the No Future slogan was a Sex Pistols slogan, it was very much what The Clash were actually putting into words. And that's when I realised, you know, this actually could, this could be, you know, more than, than just the, the, the raw excitement of three chords and, and playing it, you know, having fun. When the punk scene finally broke, I suppose it was a, an absolute godsend for us. Um, you know, we were the, we we then had music of our own age, of our own of our own era, and uh, of a type we really really liked. It was raw. We were raw, so it kind of fitted the bill for us. So the scene grew out of that. I think my first first recollection would be sort of of Rudy. Rudy seemed to be the first on the scene doing the thing. From there, there just seemed to be a rash of, of bands just starting up, trying to do their own thing. The outcasts, and then obviously ourselves. There, there were lots of others who, who seemed to be around, and then just suddenly sprung up at the same time. Blair, Highway Star's bassist, was the first to discover punk rock, and left the band to join Belfast's first punk rock band, Rudy. Our bass player at the time was a guy called Gordon Blair, who quit because he didn't want to play, and I quote, "That fucking punk rubbish." Fair enough. He's entitled to his opinion, so off he went, which now left three of us which, you know, two guitar players and a drummer do not a band make unless you're the white stripes seeing double from the drum kit. Rudy used to wear boiler suits splashed with painted slogans and their own song titles, much like The Clash did. Their early songs included Cops, a song about a skirmish between punks and the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, the police force in Northern Ireland between 1922 and 2001, after a Clash gig had been cancelled because the insurance had been withdrawn. It was at a Rudy show in January of 1978 that Terry Hooley, the owner of Good Vibrations record shop in Belfast, decided to set up a record label. He said in his and Richard Sullivan's 2010 book, Hooligans, Music, Mayhem and Good Vibrations, Rudy took to the stage and they blew my mind. From the moment the first chords were played, I was completely in love with them, hook, line and sinker. Rudy's debut release with Good Vibrations Records was the single Big Time in May 1978. It received positive reviews in the music press and was later described by Henry MacDonald of The Observer as one of the most perfect pop songs to come out of this island. Hooley would go on to sign and release groups such as Victim, The Moondogs, The Shapes, Protex, The Outcasts and The Tearjerkers among others as well as the Undertones debut single, Teenage Kicks. Blair was sacked by the band in mid-1979 and went on to play for other Belfast punk bands, The Outcasts, The Trial, Big Self and Roofrex during the early 1980s. 
Between 1987 and 1997, he occasionally played bass for Australian outfit Dave Graney and the Coral Snakes, before finally hanging up his bass to concentrate on a career in desktop publishing. Take a trip beside the world, breakers rush for shingle we needed a bass player, and a friend of ours said, oh, he said, oh, you're going to play all that fucking pop nonsense? I said, I've got a friend who likes all that crap, I'm sure you'll fit in, and he's got a martial amp. Enter Mr. McMorty. Ali McMordy took over on bass in Highway Star, and they decided to become a punk band rather than a covers band. This meant a name change was required, as they decided Highway Star was not punk sounding enough. They briefly flirted with the name The Fast, but eventually decided to name themselves after a song on The Vibrators' debut 1977 album Pure Mania. Ladies and gentlemen, Boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of Stiff Little Fingers. Stiff Little Fingers, especially Burns, were heavily influenced by The Clash. It was when I heard the first Clash album that I suddenly just pulled up short and thought, shit, this is fucking real. I mean, these guys aren't fucking about it. And that's when we stopped being effectively being Highway Star. What The Clash's first album did more than anything else was give me the confidence through its lyrical subject matter to realise it was okay to write about my own life and experiences, Burns said in Roland Link's 2009 book Kicking Up a Racket, the story of Stiff Little Fingers. He added in the 2021 Spin.com interview that the songwriting shone through, mainly the lyrics. A song like Career Opportunities really hit home. This wasn't about bowling down Californian highways or the Knights of the Friggin' Round Table. It wasn't even a call for anarchy. It was a howl of well-expressed rage about how a generation was being abandoned to the dole queue. And living in Northern Ireland, where the unemployment figures were one in three, that really hit home. Unlike the undertones, Stiff Little Fingers started to write songs about growing up in the Troubles in late 1970s Northern Ireland, in the song State of Emergency for example, and working boring jobs in the song Breakout. It was difficult for punk bands at this time to get gigs, due to the aforementioned curfew in the city centre. I always felt that we were in, a, in quite a, a backwater, you know, uh, culturally. But there were no bands that came to Belfast. Um, at the time they were, they literally thought that they would be flying into a Beirut situation. Um, and fair to say, you know, uh, musicians have been targeted there. 
The three main venues in Belfast at the time were too big for local punk bands, unless they were lucky enough to blag themselves a support slot with a rare visiting band that might be playing at the Ulster Hall or Queen's University. The third venue, the Pound Club, did put on local bands, but only covers bands, due to the fact that there was already enough violence in the city anyway. Punks and punk music were vilified in the media for causing mayhem and destruction. Why would any self-respecting venue want to add to the city's woes by booking punk bands? However, enterprising young punks would privately hire function rooms in hotels, claiming it was an 18th birthday party where a band would be playing. Then attendees would be sold invites, not tickets, to the party, and all of a sudden you had yourself a punk gig. It was while playing one such gig at the Glen Macken Hotel that Stiff Little Fingers first met Gordon Ogilvy, a journalist who loved them and encouraged them to write more material based upon their experience of the Troubles, what concerned them and what they'd like to see change. Colin McClelland was our first manager. He was the editor, the entertainment editor of the Sunday News in Belfast at the time. And he became aware of the band because um, Jake would write to him constantly inviting him to shows, uh, telling him how brilliant the band was. I basically wrote these really snotty, cheeky letters. I mean, you know, like I said, it was, it was, it was punk rock, it's what you did, you know, you had no respect for anybody. I, I seem to recall I, I, one of the lines I wrote was, we're the best thing to happen to music since Val Morrison fucked off. He came along to one of the first shows and brought um, another journalist, um, a friend of his, uh, Gordon Ogilvy. I remember on the very first night that Colin and I saw them, uh, Colin said to me something like, well, if these guys were a garage band, they'd been rehearsing in that garage a long time. We did the gig, I uh, talked to them afterwards, and they said, you know, got any management, have you? And I thought, Jesus, this has gone up a bit from publicity, hasn't it? He asked the group to look at some lyrics he'd drafted, they liked what they read, and shortly after this, Suspect Device became a fixture in their live set. Around the same time, Burns also wrote Wasted Life. Burns and Ogilvy would go on to have a long-standing songwriting partnership. It had occurred to me that um, this was exactly the kind of music that should come out of a background like Northern Ireland. And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a piece of paper and hand, literally handed me pretty much the finished lyric of Suspect Device. And it was one of those moments in your life when like, you know you see on those old 60s TV programs like the time tunnel where like the room suddenly goes all liquefied and spins around you. That's exactly what it was like. I sat there in this pub and like everything was just, it was like my head was underwater, the whole room span. I just saw this piece of paper and thought, this is fucking amazing. I mean, what I can't do with this. And that's when the whole fucking band changed. And it was like somebody had put a key in a lock and opened the door and everything came pouring out. And, you know, years and years and years of frustration of what we'd all grown up through all came pouring out thanks to that one piece of paper. It, it's the song that starts off and the family material is planted in my head. It's a suspect voice that's left 2000 dead, which uh, is basically the, uh, the, the propaganda of these people you know, trying to get you to join paramilitary groups. You know, that, that was basically the inflammable material. You know. And uh, that has obviously killed a lot of people because a lot of kids have fallen in 
don't mind that join these organisations and manage to get themselves killed, right? Just looking sort of two fingers up to the world, but which in a way we did to Northern Ireland. Not Northern Ireland as a country, Northern Ireland as a as an institution to grow up in. It's very, very different from the rest of British Ireland. McClelland arranged to get the band some recording time at a local radio station. In a studio normally used to record jingles, they recorded Suspect Device and its B-side, Wasted Life. I could be a soldier, go out there and fight to save this land. Suspect Device was self-released on cassette by the band in February 1978. Nobody, nobody bit, nobody was interested. So Gordon then turns to me and goes, well, let's put it out ourselves. I went, can you do that? He said, come on, it's punk rock, mate. Everybody's fucking doing it. Of course we can do it. You know, I spent something like £300 to have something like 200 records pressed. We had then to uh, package and ship the thing. So literally a few nights spent in uh, Gordon's flat with uh, several boxes of, of, of records, several uh, hundred thousand, it seemed, although there were probably only hundreds of uh pre-printed but, but not pre-glued pre um, sleeves, which literally had to be pasted A to B, C to D, you know. The 500 copies were packaged up with a cover which made it look like a cassette bomb, a move which the band found funny, but caused a bit of controversy, where one apocryphal story tells of a record company it was sent to, mistaking it for a real bomb. The single was then thrown into a bucket of water in an attempt to disarm it. This record company later had to request a second copy to listen to once the panic had died down and they took a closer look. I got hold of a photo of a device which the IRA were using at the time packing inflammable material in cassette boxes. But originally Jake was a little bit resistant to the idea. He said, I don't want people to think they were trying to cash in. I said, what's to cash in, you know? I mean, uh, classically, we always say in interviews, but it's no more than the truth. Did people really think, you know, that Brian Wilson was some kind of um, ne'er-do-well because he dared to write songs about surfing? He didn't even surf Brian Wilson. <laughs> we thought it was kind of funny, Bern said. I mean, bad taste for sure, but funny nonetheless. Sadly, some labels didn't see it that way. Even years later, I found out that some guy who ended up working with us when we were at Chrysalis had thought we were wankers for sending this out because he'd been evacuated from an Oxford Street store at Christmas due to a suspected bomb scare. This guy harboured that resentment against us for years. On the more positive side, a copy of the single was sent to John Peel who played it repeatedly on his legendary Radio 1 show which led to Stiff Little Fingers being offered a distribution deal through Rough Trade. We then gave the distribution to Rough Trade, we sent the records down to them, or well, they went straight across from Dublin, and the sleeves came from another direction, and the people at Rough Trade put them together and then farmed them out to their network of independent shops. The single was re-released on the band's own Rigid Digits label a year and a month later in March 1979, and sold over 30,000 copies. Suspect Device confronts the violence, politics and impact of the Troubles on those who grew up with it, 
It's a searing, breathtaking, intense performance, with Burns barking out his caustic, defiant lyrics like an angry dog to a backdrop of thrashing buzzsaw guitars. Peel arranged for the group to record a session for his show. The songs Wasted Life, Johnny Was, Alternative Ulster and State of Emergency were broadcast on the 13th of April 1978. Another John Peel session was recorded in September, and the songs Law and Order, Barbed Wire Love, Suspect Device and a longer version of Johnny Was were broadcast on the 18th of September 1978. Stiff Little Finger's decision to write songs about the experiences of young people growing up during the Troubles proved controversial. Some Northern Ireland punk bands felt that songs about the Troubles were exploiting the sectarian conflict. There was also criticism and suspicion over the involvement and influence the management team was having on the band, especially Ogilvy. The closest I'll ever admit to these sort of scurrilous rumours that I was some kind of charlatan Malcolm McLaren figure who manipulated this poor defenceless boy from the back streets of Belfast is that essentially I had the idea for what I think are good musical, good artistic reasons if you like, that they should write songs about their lives which was the horror and the inconvenience and the tedium of the troubles. These political differences were reinforced by musical differences, as Stiff Little Finger's rockier punk sound contrasted with the more melodic pop-punk of the undertones and Rudy. There were a number of well-publicised arguments. For example, the undertones accused Stiff Little Fingers of sensationalising the Northern Ireland conflict, while Stiff Little Fingers countered that the undertones ignored it. In his 2016 autobiography, Teenage Kicks, My Life is an Undertone, Michael Bradley, the Undertone's bassist, says how their guitarist and principal songwriter John O'Neill confronted Burns in 1979. He launched into Jake, not physically but verbally, slagging his records, slagging the journalists writing the songs, and slagging the band. However, in the same book, Bradley describes Suspect Device as a great record, although at the time we weren't impressed probably because they'd made a record before us. Terry Hooley said in his autobiography that SLF were really starting to make waves beyond Northern Ireland, and I always see them as the ones that got away. I know I've always said I never rated them, but that was probably jealousy on my part. I actually think they're a great band and deserve their success. Contrary to the jealousies of other Northern Irish bands and people in the music industry there, Stiff Little Fingers built up an ardent following among young people in Belfast. Sean O'Neill, co-author of It Makes You Want to Spit, the definitive guide to punk in Northern Ireland, said, As a 14 or 15 year old schoolboy back in the late 70s, I wasn't at all concerned with who had written or contributed to the lyrics of their songs. To me, it was crystal clear that the band meant what they were singing, and even better, they were singing about my life and offering me alternative points of view. Their initial burst of raw energy on the Ulster punk scene was captivating, and as soon as they transferred that energy to vinyl, they were truly off and running. The band's second single, Alternative Ulster, was originally intended to be given away free as a flexi-disc with the fanzine of the same name. 
We were approached by Ireland who'd heard the, the record on Peel and uh, the fact that he was raving about it. And they sent a couple of guys over to Belfast to come see us play. Which at the time was a, was a huge thing because you know, we were thinking, well, you know, we know from reading the mainstream music press how difficult it is to get A&R people to come to a gig in London. It's damn near impossible to get them to go to a gig in Manchester. How the hell are they going to get them to come to Belfast where they're likely to get fucking shot at, you know? But amazingly, these two guys turned up and we had to organise this gig. We then got a call from Ireland saying, yep, you know, two A&R guys think it's great. We'd like you to come across and record some demo stuff for us. We really couldn't believe uh, that uh, there was a major label out there that was willing to sign this band from the, the backwater called Belfast that we'd, we'd grown up in. So they flew us across, put us up in a hotel in Hammersmith. We turned up at their studio in, uh, uh, in Hammersmith itself, down in the basement there. And we were amazed to find that Ed Hollis was actually producing the fucking demos. Now this is the guy, like I said, he's sort of a top ten single and he's producing our demos? Great, so we thought, these guys are really serious, you know. But a week or so later we got a formal offer through, they offered us quite a large amount of money at the time. Uh, three album deal. No, pack your bags, quit your jobs, we want you in London. We had the island deal and we could have just gone in and done it. Bear in mind at the time, uh, I think the unemployment rate in mainland Britain was one in ten. In Northern Ireland it was one in three. We quit our jobs, we told our mums this is it, we're leaving, cheerio, tears and all that sort of thing. And then we got word back that uh, the, the deal had been vetoed. They hadn't signed their side so that was us stuck. I remember phoning Gordon up and saying, you know, well, we've, you know, we've had a, a talk about it and we've decided we want to carry on. He just burst out laughing and said, well, what the fuck else are you going to do, you useless fucker? <laughs> There's nothing else to do. Gordon had been going to, because he'd moved now from Belfast to London, so he'd been just frequenting the rough trade shop, just buying records, basically, and introduced himself to the guys that worked there as the managers to Four Fingers. And they were like, oh, how do we sell, you know, so a lot of that, that suspect of ice record. And he said, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's gone really well for the band. And, you know, they're coming over to do the Tom Robinson tour and stuff. And they said, oh, when's the next record out? And I think that they told us they were recording a single. But they weren't, I think they weren't happy with it. And this was alternative Ulster. So I, I went into Ireland and got the tape. And I don't remember money changing hands, but we got it. But somehow, some kind of foolhardy statement, I said that I would mix it for them. I don't know what possessed me to say that because I'd never mixed a record in my life before. And Rough Trade said, OK, well, we'll put it as a single. And that was really the beginning of our relationship with them, and that became a Rough Trade record. The move to Rough Trade was, I think, the best thing that happened to us, no doubt about that. Jeff said, look, we've never made, a, never made an album before. You've never made an album before. Let's make an album. Once we've recouped whatever it costs to make it, we'll split the profit 50-50. didn't seem fair to say, well, you do the work and we'll earn three times as much as you which is what conventional record royalty usually is. Rough Trade was originally a record shop on Kensington Park Road in London, set up in February 1976 by Jeff Travis, who named it after a Canadian New Wave band. The French punk band Metal Urbane visited the shop in 1977 and asked for help distributing their music, which led to Rough Trade setting up a distribution network called The Cartel, in collaboration with other UK independent record stores.
Its first release was Metal Urbane's second single, Paris Marquis. The cartel network enabled small record labels such as Factory Records and Two-Tone Records to sell their releases nationally. It specialised primarily in European post-punk and other alternative rock of the late 1970s and early 1980s. It also distributed a range of British fanzines such as No Cure. During 1978, the label released singles by The Monochrome Set, Subway Sect, Swell Maps, Electric Eels, Spizzoil and Kleenex, as well as Stiff Little Fingers' Alternative Ulster. Burns described Alternative Ulster in an interview with The Guardian in 2003 as a song written in the classic punk mode about having nothing to do, because that was the overriding reality of life in Belfast for a teenager in the mid-70s. Not the fear of riots or bombs or whatever. It was the sheer tedium of having nowhere to go and nothing to do when you got there. Originally, the song was meant to be the B-side to 78 RPM, but the decision was made by the band to reverse the track listing. By the end of the year, Stiff Little Finger's growing popularity was reflected in Suspect Device reaching number 5, an alternative Ulster being voted number 11 in the annual Festive 50 broadcast on the John Peel show, though neither of the songs managed to crack the charts. The Undertones released Teenage Kicks on the same week as Alternative Ulster, starting a rivalry between the two bands. When U2's frontman Bono was asked in a 2007 interview in the Observer Music Monthly if Teenage Kicks was the best song about being a teenager, he responded, I love the undertones, but I'm not necessarily a Kicks guy. For me it was more about rage, still is really. My soundtrack was more alternative Ulster by Stiff Little Fingers. After a tour supporting the Tom Robinson band, Stiff Little Fingers entered Spacewood Studios in Cambridge in November 1978 to record their first album, Inflammable Material. The album was released in February 1979 through the Rough Trade label. This was the first time Rough Trade had released an album rather than just singles. Inflammable Material became the first ever independently released album to chart in the UK, reaching number 14 on the UK Albums Chart and achieving silver status, having sold over 100,000 copies. Around half the tracks on the album are about the troubles and the grim reality of life in Northern Ireland, with the songs containing themes of teenage boredom, sectarian violence, and R.U.C. oppression. The song Rough Trade is about the band's view on the music business as being dishonest, but the band claim it's not about the record label. Another track, Johnny Was, was a cover of a Bob Marley and the Wailers song with the words adapted to place the song in Belfast. However, in a 2017 interview with LouderThanWar.com, Burns said, Everybody refers to it as the Irish record, but I always say to go and look at the tracks, and there's probably four out of 13 that refer specifically to Northern Ireland. 
The rest of it is just disaffected teenagers kicking against the world. Inflammable material received critical acclaim at the time in the music press and continues to be counted as an essential album to this day. In a review in the NME in 1979, Paul Morley wrote, Inflammable material is the classic punk rock record, a crushing contemporary commentary brutally inspired by blatant bitter rebellion and frustration. He went on to say that Stiff Little Fingers are the best rock and roll band in my world. The group's first record, Suspect Device, one of the all-time great debut records, Alternative Ulster, one of the all-time great second records by a group. By the end of 1978, Stiff Little Fingers were the most popular new group in Britain. Gary Bushell also gave Inflammable Material a five-star review in Sounds upon the album's release. Since then, it's received a four-star out of five review in the new Rolling Stone record guide in 1983, and another Rolling Stone review by Gaylord Fields in 2005 also rated it four out of five. Also rating four out of five was Q Magazine in 2001, and a review of the reissue of the album in 2005. Most recently, Tom Jurek reviewed the album on AllMusic, also giving it four stars out of five, saying Suspect Device and Alternative Ulster make the purchase price of this album a priority. They represent barely contained youthful anger at social and political mores as righteous, utterly devoid of posturing or falsity and raging to break out. Alternative Ulster decries the Irish political sides in the Northern Ireland controversy, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and the Irish Republican Army, holding them both accountable for bloodshed and social and economic stasis, furthering nothing but their own interests. Suspect Device, which opens the set, screams at the heart of the conflict that neither side can be believed as both reduce freedom to a buzzword while wielding guns. Both tracks are calls to arms, but of a different sort. The arms of dialogue and intelligence in the midst of idiocy and murder. Punk rock never sounded so brutal or positive in one band. If you've been trying to dig through the morass into the heart of punk's original fire, this one's for you. Making an album conceptually was just a matter of thinking about how to record that kind of mighty sound they had live. I mean, why they let us produce them is a really interesting question, and I'd like to know the answer to that. I mean, the thing I enjoyed most about making the record was the fact that it was so fast, and the fact that we, we managed, in our innocence and naivety, to help capture the energy of the group. And I think a, a, almost anybody else would have put in some production techniques which would have softened and blanded out the edges of what they were doing. And I think that's the virtue of our amateur production technique. It was an exciting thing for us to release an album and the fact that it sold so many really, again, it wasn't really in our thinking. I mean, I don't think we were thinking, what is it going to sell? I think we were thinking, is it any good? It wasn't on general release. It was just a box of albums or whatever sent to each of the indie stores in this loose framework of, uh, around the country that Rough Trade had. It started selling Hand Over Fist uh, to the point that on, amazingly, on my 21st birthday, it was the highest new entry in the album chart. And it was the first time that a completely independent album had ever cracked the album chart. BMRB 
uh, thought it was uh, hyped into the charts because they'd never heard of anything like this happening before and promptly threw it out. Uh, of course, whenever the sales continued, it went back in uh, up to, I think it was like number 15. We were on tour with two other bands from Rock Trade, uh, Essential Logic and The Normal. And what the idea was that every night we would uh, rotate the headliner was, yeah. But after about three gigs it became obvious that, I mean, we, if we were on first, we'd play and everybody would go home. So it was like, well, this is I mean, we're not saying, we, we're talking and saying, look, we're not saying we're blah, 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 but obviously they're here to see us. So they said, look, well, we're playing with nobody. So we ended up headlining every night, which just made sense. But halfway through the tour, we were sitting outside of the club in Derby and from the album chart came out and was in number 14. And the gigs were, I mean, it was so, the gigs were stuffed to the doors. I mean, it was like the people lying on people, you know, it was so, it was great, but it, it became big right in the middle of a small tour. I remember um, at a lunchtime in a, in a pub, actually ha being, as it happened, it was just Jake and me, and he just sort of looked at me and said, well, we did it, didn't we? Yeah, we did. It cost 2,000 quid to make. By the end of the year, they cleared more than a quarter of a million. We made the record in like 10 days in a basement. God bless Rough Trade. Growing interest in Stiff Little Fingers led the band to move to London midway through 1979. However, the rock and roll lifestyle wasn't for drummer Brian Falloon, who decided to leave the band at this point. As things progressed, I mean, while I loved the tour and every minute of it, um, other things then behind the scenes started to happen too. We started to get into that kind of rat race, that, that bidding race of who would sign us next, you know. Brian didn't even tour of album material. Brian stayed to record it and then left to get married. I made a very, very difficult phone call to, to Gordon uh, and then to Jake, obviously. We had to persuade him to stay and play on the album because we would have been really shafted. So. We, we had an album recorded, we had a 78 tour of Ireland booked just before Christmas, 78, um, and no drummer. Colin McClelland, who along with Gordon Ogilvie had been joint manager of the band up until that point, also decided to leave at this time. Hello Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. In the 1990s, Falloon occasionally performed as a guest drummer with the Stiff Little Fingers tribute band Hanks, which evolved into a minor punk band in its own right called the Red Eyes. By 2009, he presented a weekly show on local radio in Belfast, and in 2011 he ran as a candidate for the People Before Profit party in Belfast South. We started getting all these weird phone calls from people, one of whom turned out to be Jim Riley, who called from Sheffield. He was working as a uh, window cleaner at the time, and he phoned Rob Freed. And as it happened, Henry was in the back room at the time and answered the phone. And uh, this voice on the other end said, uh, can I speak to somebody from Stiff Little Fingers? And Henry said, I'm with Stiff Little Fingers. He said, oh good, I'm your new drummer. And indeed he was. <laughs> Jim Riley became Stiff Little Fingers drummer in time to record the band's next album, Nobody's Heroes, and play on a Rock Against Racism tour. When major labels started to show interest, I think it was to, to do with the fact that they wanted the security of it. I think we were, we were quite upset that they wanted to leave, and then on the other hand we thought, well okay, you know, perhaps we don't have an international system, we don't have as many of the things to offer as perhaps someone else can, so we accepted that. Certainly, um, Doug Darcy, who was the MD at Chrysalis afterwards, told me that the figures, I think, we got a gold disc that, that sold 100,000. He said he would, they would have sold, shifted a quarter of a million of them. Stiff Little Fingers never signed to Chrysalis Records. We signed a production company to Chrysalis Records, which said, we will make the record, and you sell it. So you've got no say in what it sounds like, you've got no say in how it's produced. We used the, the position that we had to try and get as much, uh, con as much control as possible. At the time, I, I remember there was, a, there was a fad for hideous, coloured, stupidly shaped records. Just novelties. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like the packaging was more important than what was in it. The original contract said, except without the express approval of the band, all records will be black and round. In other words, we were given complete control. Three singles came out ahead of the album's release. Gotta Get Away was the first, released on the 8th of May 1979, but it failed to chart. To coincide with the single's release, Stiff Little Fingers headlined their first tour over 21 dates across Britain and Ireland. The highlight of the tour was the sellout gig at Belfast's biggest music venue, the Ulster Hall, on the 21st of May, which marked the first time a local punk band had headlined there. In Roland Link's 2009 book, Kicking Up a Racket, The Story of Stiff Little Fingers 1977-83, Jim Riley said, at the height of the troubles, we packed the place and then some. 
and staring out at that seething mass of young people just enjoying themselves and having a great time to the music was something that has remained a treasured memory for me all these years. That night I realised we were doing something that none of the politicians were able to do. In that hall, in the midst of a city gripped by sectarian violence, killing and hatred, we brought together the people of our hometown, regardless of religion. The second single from the forthcoming album, Straw Dogs, was released on the 21st of September and became the band's biggest single to date, reaching number 44, which meant that the band narrowly missed out on appearing on Top of the Pops, as you had to have a single charting in the top 40 to appear on the show. In 1980, when we got round to making Nobody's Heroes, it's the second record, looking back on it now, I actually do feel it's pretty much much of the same. We were obviously starting to play better, the production values were better, um, and it also gave us the breakthrough hit single at the time as well. However, the third single, At The Edge, did even better, peaking at number 15 after it was released on the 9th of February 1980, and secured Stiff Little Finger's first appearance on Top of the Pops. But, because the band was miming, they weren't taking it particularly seriously. At first, the performance looks just like an energetic punk band performing with gusto, but around halfway through the song, Riley stops playing in time with the backing track, causing Burns to lose it completely, and he struggles for the rest of the song to stop laughing. The camera pans right out, and there are overlaid images of two camera angles to obscure the chaos, especially the fact that Riley had got up and joined the guitarists, miming a guitar part on his drumsticks. The management at Top of the Pops weren't impressed, and they said that the band would never be invited back on to play again. Of course, this wasn't the last time they appeared on the show. Though to this day, At The Edge remains Stiff Little Finger's highest charting single. After recording for 11 days at the end of January 1980, the band's second album, Nobody's Heroes, was released on the 7th of March. Smash Hits gave the album a score of 8 out of 10, and in the American Sounds magazine in April, Doug Bennett wrote in his review, This four-man band from across the Atlantic takes its rock cues from The Clash, playing the same basic but dynamic rock, with the same measure of integrity. Just like The Clash, this is a political band, and if the roots are Irish, the sentiments remain universal. It is an LP that sounds better with repeated listenings as the hooks and harmonic tensions emerge from the mix and subtle variations and embellishments become apparent. He highlighted the tracks Doesn't Make It Alright, a cover of a song by The Specials, Nobody's Hero, Tin Soldiers and I Don't Like You as the best tracks on the album. A lot of people I know didn't like it because it was cleaner and it moved on a bit. I actually can see that because I, I think the, the difference is pretty big but still got the same ideas. 
More recently, Alex Og wrote in a 4.5 out of 5 star review on AllMusic that it's easy to see why Stiff Littlefinger's rough trade debut remains so highly rated, but for the discerning fan of second generation punk, Nobody's Heroes is every bit as special. For a start, new drummer Jim Riley was an improvement on Brian Falloon, who gets a heartwarming tribute on Wait and See. Secondly, Jake Byrne's songwriting collaborations with journalist Gordon Ogilvie are really beginning to pay off. The cornerstones of the LP are Gotta Get Away, At The Edge and Tin Soldiers, three songs which in different ways brilliantly articulate the frustrated ambitions of young men in search of expression and identity, trapped in nowhere jobs or situations. Though Suspect Device and Alternative Ulster have long since ensured they would always be tagged with the label of political punk, in truth, SLF were always more interested in their immediate environment and finding a way out of it. A couple of plausible stabs at reggae are more than an interesting aside. Nobody's Heroes reached number 8 on the UK album charts and spawned a final double A-side single, Nobody's Hero and Tin Soldiers, which was released on the 16th of May and reached number 36 on the UK album chart, which saw them perform on top of the pops again. On the 8th of July, the band released a standalone double A-side single, Back to Front and Mr. Fire Coleman, which reached number 49 in the chart. Burns' singing style on Back to Front hints at the more melodic direction he and the band were moving in after Nobody's Heroes, as they worked on their musicianship and the natural progression they were making through their constant touring schedule. But it also had darker lyrical content about football hooliganism, with lyrics like fight on the beaches and back home streets, welcoming in without clenched hands. Standing on others with your own feet, you've got to prove that you're a man. Mr. Fire Coleman, on the other hand, is an almost five minute long dub inspired song a cover of an original by the Wailing Souls, which harks back to their love of reggae and dub, which had been evident in their work ever since Inflammable Material. The band continued to play solidly throughout the last half of 1980, and in February 1981 they went back into the studio to record their third album, Go For It. The songwriting and musicianship on this album became more sophisticated and began a trend towards a more pop-punk sound. By the time we got round to meeting Gopher in 1981, if you didn't have a Mohegan and five studs tattooed across your fucking forehead, you weren't allowed to be in a punk band. And the whole thing had become constricted and tight and horrible. And, and I just wanted to carry on down the road that I started out on in what I consider to be a punk band, which was the, the ability and the permission, if you like, to express yourself. So if I wanted to write a pop record, I was fucked if I wasn't going to write a fucking pop record. And that's what we basically did. I mean, we, we ran ahead and started to write pop singles at that point. The album was preceded by the single Just Fade Away, 
which really showcased their new, more polished sound, and saw them perform once more on Top of the Pops with Burns wearing a tuxedo, despite only reaching number 47 in the charts. The show's producers decided they weren't giving Riley a drum kit again though, and he performed playing a boron and a single cymbal. Despite its pop-punk sound, Go For It features songs with much darker and taboo subjects. For example, the song Hits and Misses is about domestic abuse. But the band still also wrote songs about being a teenager, with the song Kicking Up a Racket. The album's title track is an instrumental song, which is rare, especially for punk bands who usually write songs around having something to say. Again, there are big nods to reggae with the album opener, Roots, Radicals, Rockers and Reggae being a rearrangement of a Bunny Whaler song, and the self-penned The Only One having a London Calling style fusion of punk and reggae. There was a lot of genuine love went into making of that album, and it hadn't really struck, to, struck us until we played it to one or two of the guys at Chrysalis, they came to, down to the studio. I remember one bloke saying to me, um, so what I really like about it is it's so positive, it, it's so sort of life-affirming and too many punk rock albums are all about, oh, isn't my life hell and so on and so forth. And I said, well, yeah, it's called Go For It. The album reached number 14 on the UK Albums chart after its release on the 17th of April 1981. Dave Thompson wrote on AllMusic that Go For It is an album whose sense of adventure was as radical as its sense of purpose a raw affirmation of the rock and reggae hybrid that had been pioneered elsewhere. The Clash and the Ruts come most immediately to mind. But was now to be twisted through Jake Byrne's own private version of punk as its most personally committed. Two excellent hit singles, Just Fade Away and Silver Lining, bolstered what was already shaping up to be Stiff Little Finger's finest album. The second single, Silver Lining, which even has a horn section from the Q-tips and a piano part played by Burns, is a far cry from Suspect Device. But the themes of the song, compassion, thinking for yourself, changing the world, and challenging the people who are on top, have been common to Stiff Little Fingers songs since they first started out. Do you care, is it not fair, Burns sings. Is this the way we have to live? I know I care, and I want an equal share, even if it means I have to give. Later in 1981, Riley left Stiff Little Fingers and moved to Boston in the United States. So I started writing the songs, and Jim, who's our drummer, heard the songs and said he didn't like them. So he wanted to be up. He had enough, he wanted to quit. We came to an amicable arrangement and he agreed to do um, the French tour and so forth and, and, and we all knew that was going to be his last night and off he went. In 1983 he replaced Patrick Butler-Jones as the drummer in Red Rockers, a punk band that were transitioning to a softer new wave sound. Riley contributed to the album's Good As Gold, which reached number 71 on the US Billboard Hot 100 chart, and 1984's Schizophrenic Circus, which was the perfect name for an album from a band splintering for musical differences.
Red Rockers blew themselves apart while opening up for U2 on the Irish band's Unforgettable Fire tour in 1985. Riley then joined the Rain Dogs, a band that fused Celtic and American music to make their own take on rock and roll, and toured with such acts as Warren Zevon, Don Henley and Bob Dylan in the early 1990s. Riley has since moved back to Northern Ireland. For a time in 2004, he played in a Stiff Little Fingers tribute band called Little Fingers, and later led Jim Riley's Alternative Soldiers, after which he formed a new band called The Dead Handsomes. While looking for a new drummer, Burns made his acting debut in a 1981 episode of the BBC's Play for Today series, entitled Iris in the Traffic, Ruby in the Rain, written by Belfast-born poet and playwright Stuart Parker, which also featured the rest of Stiff Little Fingers effectively playing themselves as the band. In 1982, Stiff Little Fingers recruited ex-Tom Robinson band drummer Dolphin Taylor, who had started out playing in a band called Dragon's Playground, which, in one of its earliest lineups, featured Annie Lennox on vocals, and had performed on the TV show New Faces in 1976. In the same year, Taylor gave a friend of his a lift to an audition for the Tom Robinson band, which at the time had no drummer of its own so Taylor sat in on drums for the auditions and was recruited playing with them for two years until leaving in 1978. He then worked with German singer-songwriter Marius Müller-Westenhagen on his song Freiheit, which means freedom. This is widely considered an anthem of the German reunification. This song appeared on his 1983 album Geile ist schön. Freiheit is the einzige Um, so then we're, we're okay, fine, well we need another drummer then. Dolphin Taylor stepped onto the throne and he would had some history with uh, because we toured the Tom Robinson band that, that Dolphin had played with. Because we knew him, it was, it was like putting on an old pair of shoes, it was great, I mean he fitted in straight away. With a full lineup again, Stiff Little Fingers released a four-song EP on the 6th of January called One Pound Ten or Less, which included the songs Listen, That's When Your Blood Bumps, Sad-Eyed People and Two Guitars Clash. We started work on uh, the next record, but I didn't have enough songs for an album. And the record company were like clamoring for something. So they asked, you know, well, well, can you at least give us a single? So I said, well, let's, let's do an EP. And that way, at least, if you're going to buy, if you're going to pay the same price as a third of an album, at least you're getting a third of an album. You used to be able to put a recommended retail price on a single. And at that point, they just scrapped it. 
So we called the EP the £1.10 or less EP and put that on the cover and then basically went, okay, charge more than that, you fuckers. Because EPs were allowed to be released into the singles chart at the time, £1.10 or less reached number 33, which got them back onto Top of the Pops again, where they performed the song Listen. On the 1st of April, another standalone single was released, though it would also appear on Stiff Little Finger's next album. Talkback made use of a brass section again, and despite its catchy, poppy, 80s new wave sound, it failed to chart. In July and August, the band recorded its fourth studio album, Now Then. The album was preceded by the single Bits of Kids, a slightly sad, nostalgic lament about broken cities, broken homes and broken hearts. It was released on the 23rd of August and reached just number 73. The album, Now Then, was released on the 24th of September to mixed reviews, its much cleaner pop sound completely alienated Stiff Little Finger's punk fanbase. Writing on AllMusic, Alex Ogg wrote that, to be fair, leader Jake Burns has always professed a high regard for Bruce Springsteen and Little Feet as much as his punk elders. And his lyrics here changed in tone rather than theme, but that wasn't enough to establish a new audience, nor retain their existing one. It's a real shame, because so much of Now Then is superb, honest, combative and heartfelt. Won't be told, the price of admission and the singles Talk Back and Bits of Kids are far more three-dimensional than Suspect Device could ever be. Incidentally, Jake Burns inspired Paul Young to cover Love of the Common People. Now Then reached number 24 on the UK album charts the lowest peak position of any of their albums, and the first not to break into the top 15. Henry wanted to make a Ramones record, as far as I was concerned, that ship had sailed. Uh, Ali wanted to make a James Brown record, as far as I was concerned, we weren't good enough to do that and I wanted to make an Elvis Costello record and the others weren't interested in that. Whatever we'd have, particularly let's say vis-a-vis -vis myself and songwriting with Jake, wasn't quite working the same. I think that's because by that stage we'd, we'd been reasonably successful very quickly and four of us were pulling in different directions. There are people who love that album, so it, it, it is great, and there are others who um, can't stand it. Um, of course, you'll never be able to please everyone, um, and I think that's just a manifestation of the, the fact that there was more experimentation on that album, I think, than any, any previous one. The songs on it weren't that great. Uh, I wasn't writing particularly well. I think when it's good, it's very, very good. And I think Bits of Kids is as good as anything we've ever done. Um, but when it's bad, it's bloody awful. I think what had happened was we decided, let's try something a bit different. 
And I remember Jake and me sitting there and we were saying, look, listen to this. I said, I'm not blaming this on anybody because I was much to blame myself. I mean, I wrote big city nights and it's like, you mean it's not to stick our fingers in the slightest, but we're, we're saying, look, what's going to happen? And it lost us a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. Really did. And it had some good songs in that. Yeah. But I think what we did was we, we, we cared a lot more about what it sounded like and how everything was played. And where the first three albums were more like play the way we play yeah. on a stage. Yeah. This one wasn't. This one was more like, okay, just then we'll, let's put the piano on it and do this. And it's like, we never did that before. It really was turn up the studio and be like, oh, we need this harmony part. It's like, we did inflammable material from setting up the first drum to walking out of the studio in like 12 days and the, the, this one was taking like two blocks of two weeks in the top studio and I was like, what are we doing? I remember Henry turning up to do his vocal with his suitcase. He walked in, into the studio, under the microphone, dumped the suitcase down and said, this better be quick, I'm on a half six playing the Belfast. I was just as bad. I'd rather go to the pub and watch Northern Ireland play because the World Cup was on then pay attention to the record my band were supposed to be making. So we were all as guilty as each other. And I think we just, I don't know whether we were disillusioned with Stiffle Fingers, or I think more importantly we were disillusioned with each other. The third single from the album, The Low Tempo, The Price of Admission, was released on the 4th of February 1983 and barely scraped into the chart, peaking at just number 95 and is currently the band's last single to chart. When we went out to tour the Now Then record, it was apparent that there'd been a huge sea change. I mean, we're now talking Britain in 1982. I remember Gordon telling, telling me a, a story that he was in reception at Chrysalis with Rick Rogers, who was managing the specials at the time. And the two of them were just starting talking. And Spandau Ballet walked through to sign. And Rick turned to Gordon and went, well, that's both of us fucked then, isn't it? And it was pretty much true. I mean, once the new romantic thing happened, then punk rock was as archaic as Yes had been when the Sex Pistols happened. So I thought the best thing to do was to call it a day. I mean, it wasn't an easy decision to make. It was a bit of a shock, um, but I, at the same time, I could see why uh, he wasn't happy with... Um, the way things had turned out. I went to his room in, in Copenhagen before the, before the show and said, look, this is my last show. Um, I think we've, you know, we've had a decent enough run, but nobody's interested anymore. And do you really want to go back and play, play pubs again? Because that's what we're looking at. Because I don't. That's when Jake said for the first time split up the band. And, um... Looking back now, he's probably right, but at the time, you don't think that. You think, you know, we didn't give this new stuff a good enough chance. Mm -hmm. But if I look back on it now, I could say that that's not, that's not stuff of fingers. It's too different. It's not a step forward, it's a total jump. So somebody showed you how to be a man. Due to low sales and concert attendances, Stiff Little Fingers broke up, with Burns stating, Our last LP, Now Then, was to my mind the best album we've made. 
but it's also unfortunately the best I think we will ever make, so I've decided to call it a day. The band later revealed the split had been a bitter one, with band members having fistfights rather than talking through their differences. Burns later told Spin.com, By 1982, Duran Duran and the like were making videos on luxury yachts in the Caribbean, and the mighty synthesizer was everywhere. Gritty guitar bands were not really on the agenda. Now I've got nothing against rock music as entertainment, escapism is a fine thing, it's just not my thing. Also, we as people were not the folks we had been when we formed the band. Cracks were appearing and arguments became more and more divisive. Add to that the fact that our audience was dwindling. As I said, we simply weren't flavour of the month anymore, and splitting up seemed like a wise move. Burns then had a short stint in a band with former The Jam bassist Bruce Foxton, and the pair recorded a couple of demos, but Foxton was offered a chance to make a solo album, and this ended their collaboration, for now. Almost immediately, Burns formed a new band called Jake Burns and the Big Wheel, consisting of Burns on vocals and guitar, Steve Grantley, who had played in The Alarm on drums, Sean Martin of the Belfast punk band The Star Jets on bass guitar, and Pete Saunders, who had previously played in Dexy's Midnight Runners and The Damned, among many others, on keyboards. Jake Burns and the Big Wheel recorded a total of three singles, 1984's She Grew Up, which eventually reached number 36 on the UK independent chart in 1986, 1985's On Fortune Street, and 1987's Breathless, which charted at number 99 on the UK singles chart. The band also recorded two sessions for BBC Radio 1, a December 1983 session for David Jensen's show was broadcast in January 1984, and a May 1986 session was broadcast on Janice Long's show in June that year. Their 1987 performance at the Golders Green Hippodrome was broadcast on BBC Radio 1's In Concert programme in June 1987. A compilation album called On Fortune Street, including all the band's release material as well as tracks recorded for BBC radio sessions, previously unreleased studio recordings and live tracks, was released way after the band's demise in 2002. Stiff Little Fingers guitarist Henry Clooney toured briefly with the band Dark Lady, supporting Jake Burns and the Big Wheel, and then spent the next five years back in Belfast teaching guitar. Ali McMordy joined the newly formed dance punk band Friction Groove, which had been formed from the breakup of another new wave band called Between Pictures. They secured a deal with Atlantic Records and went on to record an album called The Black Box at the Hansa by the Wall studio in Berlin and IPC Studios in Brussels, from which two singles were released, Time Bomb and Family Affair. However, after managerial changes at Atlantic and disappointing sales of the black box, the band split in 1985. 
After this, McMordy and other members of Friction Groove became the core backing band for Sinead O'Connor, who had moved to London from Dublin in 1986, but not long after this, McMordy was sacked. Between 1992 and 94, McMordy was executive producer for the Peace Together Irish concert events. Since 94, he has run his own tour management company, Alistair McMordy Tour Management, most notably for Richard Hall, better known by his stage name Moby, for whom he has occasionally played bass. More recently, he has also played bass live for Belfast singer-songwriter Dan Donnelly. Dolphin Taylor became a session drummer for producer Nick Tauber, who had worked on Stiff Little Finger's last album, Now Then. Previously, Tauber had produced for the likes of Thin Lizzy, Slaughter and the Dogs, Cock Sparrow, Toya and Bernie Torme. Towards the end of 1983, through his work with Tauber, Taylor was introduced to and joined Spear of Destiny on drums, where he played on the albums One-Eyed Jacks and World Service. He left Spear of Destiny in 1986 after they were dropped from their record label CBS, and he was replaced by Pete Barnacle. In 1987, Burns disbanded Big Wheel and reformed Stiff Little Fingers with Clooney, McMordy and Taylor because, according to him, they were skint and wanted to make a bit of cash to get back to Ireland for Christmas. He said to Spin Magazine, We went our separate ways and tried various different musical ventures, none of which set the world on fire, and, being honest, none of which were as satisfying as SLF had been. So when Ali and I re-established contact four or five years later, reforming felt pretty natural. I've also said many times it was also because we were broke. The prospect of a run of shows finishing in Belfast just before Christmas, giving us a bit of spending money in our pockets and the chance to spend the holiday with our families was too good to turn down. I never envisaged being in Stiffle Fingers again. Um, and as far as I was concerned, it was as big a dead stop as the one Paul Weller called. It was, that was it. I was done. When I got a call from Ali five years later, I hadn't spoken to him literally at all in the interim. Back in 87, um, a Tom Robinson band reunion show that I called Jake out of the blue because we hadn't really been in touch at that stage. And I said, well, actually, I'm playing a gig tonight. Um, so I can't come, but it's great to hear from you after all this time. Why don't we get together and have a beer? That, uh, I suppose, broke the ice. We went out for a beer and one beer became six and six became seven and we started looking at all these other bands that had reformed and it was like well we were fucking better than them to fucking start with. I don't know why the fuck we How did they get away with that? And before you know it it's like well why don't we fucking reform because we're fucking better than them. And what seemed like a brilliant idea when you're hammered at 11 o'clock in a pub I woke up the next day to find I'd already gone home and phoned Henry up to see if he was interested. 87 he called me and he said, <laughs> I haven't spoken probably in a year and he called me and he said, 
I'm on the dole. <laughs> I said, all right. <laughs> and he said, um, what are you doing? I said, oh, anything I can. And he, he basically told me that him and Ali had gone out to see, he said, the Tom Robinson band. We had done a reformation and done a couple of gigs yeah. in a I mean fiddler in London. And they got talking. So the idea was to get back together, play a few gigs, get some money for Christmas, have a bit of fun with it. I got a phone call from Ali saying, yeah, Dolph's in. I'm like, Dolph's in for what? He said, reforming the band. You did phone Henry. I went, did I? All right. And turned out, yes, I did. And he was up for it as well. And before I knew it, we'd booked rehearsals and we were going on the road again. Despite fears and rumblings from naysayers that nobody would be interested in coming to see them, the band had a successful tour, especially in Germany, with shows selling out night after night, as well as at Glasgow's Barrowland where they had to add a matinee performance due to the demand for tickets. We couldn't believe the size of the crowds coming to see us. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about playing clubs. Small clubs would be happy maybe get played at 200 or whatever, and there'd be a thousand people asking for tickets. And the way we looked at it is very few people get a second chance at it. And we did. The tour had gone from six shows to something like 15, all sold out. And we were terrified. Now, instead of what we were expecting to play like the Dog and Duck Walthamstow, we're now playing, you know, like the Birmingham Hummingbird, we're playing the Newcastle Mayfair, we're playing the Glasgow Barrel. Two shows in one day at the Barrowland, both sold out. Dublin, Tivoli, Belfast, Ulster Hall, everything sold out before you go anywhere near it. And we're like, I don't want to make mistakes in front of all those fucking people. Let's go somewhere we never sold any fucking tickets. So we <laughs> phoned the agent up and said, look, we're too scared to do this. Book us a set of shows in Germany, because we always meant shit in Germany. Never sold any fucking records. Let's go to Germany. Grand. He said, how many shows do you want to do? Ah, two or three. Comes back, it was about a week later. He said, you're doing seven. They're all major venues. They're all sold out. You are fucking joking, aren't you? Probably for the only time in the entire history of this band, we rehearsed for real, because we were terrified. And we got to Germany, and I, I, I spent the entire day before the... But the entire afternoon before the first sound check, just throwing up, I was that nervous. There wasn't really any talk of, uh, of new material and uh, it was pretty much uh, just rolling out the best of. We still enjoyed playing, playing the songs, we um, uh, enjoyed the reaction and it was seeing the reaction on, on everybody's faces was, it was just incomparable. There was, people didn't, they wouldn't let us uh, not continue. This caused the band to rethink its plan on this being just a temporary reunion and decided there was enough interest in them again to make it permanent. And so we had to decide, you know, whether the band was where our future lay or not. And I actually sat down with everybody and said, look, if we're going to do this. We can't carry on being like a punk cabaret act because that's effectively what we were at the time. I mean, it didn't matter that, you know, we did, we did two nights at Brixton Academy in front of like 11,000 people. We were still ostensibly a cabaret act because we were just playing the greatest hits. If we're going to, if this is going to have any future at all, and if we're serious about this, we've got to start writing songs. However, McMordy decided he could not commit full time and was replaced by Bruce Foxton in 1991. Foxton had just disbanded Sharp, the band he and drummer Rick Buckler were playing in after the split of the jam. 
Stiff Little Fingers went almost straight into Easy Studios in London to record their comeback album, Flags and Emblems. As well as a return from the band, this album is also a return to a harder sound with driving drums and bass lines from Taylor and Foxton, more rock and roll inspired riffs from Clooney and Burns, more grit in Burns' voice, and a lot more political lyrics and social commentary. Stiff Little Fingers were back with a renewed sense of purpose and vigour. However, despite high-profile guest appearances from Rory Gallagher, who plays slide guitar on the song Human Shield, and Dr. Feelgood frontman Lee Brillio playing harmonica on It's a Long Way to Paradise From Here, the album failed to chart. The only single from Flags and Emblems, Beirut Moon, was withdrawn from sale in the UK on the first day of its release, allegedly because it criticised the government for not acting to free hostage John McCarthy, who had been held in the Lebanon. The song features news reporter John Snow delivering an announcement written especially for the song. All of the song's lyrics are utterly scathing, including Americans would bargain and rescue, but when Brits get caught they're left for rot, under the Beirut, under the Beirut moon. McCarthy was a journalist working for United Press International Television News when he was kidnapped by Islamic terrorists in April 1986. He was one of 104 foreign hostages kidnapped during the height of the Lebanese civil war between 1982 and 1992. After his release on the 8th of August 1991, he went on to co-author a memoir of his years in captivity entitled Some Other Rainbow with his then-girlfriend Jill Morell. Over the next few years, Clooney began voicing concerns that the music Stiff Little Fingers were making was going in the wrong direction, drifting away from its punk roots. Flags and albums, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. It was totally clean, nice, overproduced. A few songs on it where it could have been better, but by that stage, way further even than now. Yeah. There were some songs on it, had we had done them in the same way we'd done the first or second album, might have worked. Like it or not, and this is where Jake and me will probably even argue now if I was the speaker, people wanted the old stuff. And to this day, anybody that goes see the band on that's all stiff out fingers now, is going to jump about the alternative all and blah, 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 blah. Not the new stuff. There's no defence for it, I'm, and I'm not blaming this on Jake around because I was part of it. Things came to a head in 1994 during the recording of the band's sixth album, Get A Life. By that stage, Henry had grown his hair considerably, he turned up in Metallica t-shirts, and I mean I can't speak for him, but it felt to the rest of us, like it was kind of a, it was a job, as far as he was concerned. He would turn up and do it and go away again. We had to come to the painful decision to just let him go. In 
Okay, my story is um, we, we'd had this, we had the songs for the album. I think it became called or it became Get a Life Up. And we rehearsed it. This would have been '94. Rehearsed it, got all the things, and went to a studio. Again, this was so unstiff of fingers. It was a live-in studio, you know, with the like rooms upstairs. So we went and done. Unlike the earlier albums, we didn't set up in the studio and play the music. We did that for like one day and all we kept with the drums. And then the next day Ali would come in by himself and there was no feel, you know. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, it was my day and I, or a couple of days, I came in and did my tracks and blah blah blah. work through all the stuff. Great. Um, and it was like, okay, then Jake's got to come in and do his and then we'll leave the vocals done or whatever. So I went home to Belfast, I was doing all my stuff and I hadn't heard him for two weeks. And I thought, surely there's some movement now because this is a long time. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And the, the manager called me and said, I don't know how to tell you this, he just said, but they don't want you to come back. Now, apart from the fact that it really hit me, it was like, I grew up with Jake Burns. We grew up together, we went to school together. And he had some guy that was known for a couple of years calling up the yeah. drummer. And I thought, what? And I tried to call him. He speak to me. His wife said he was in the bath. You know, just a long bath. It was, uh, it really got me. And I thought, for a while, I just thought, what? A, I mean, uh, the, the papers back home were him, and I was saying the nastiest things about him I could think of because. I still do think that is a low way to do it. No matter whether you think you're right, no matter whether your reasons are right or whatever, that's not the way to do it. It's breaking up with your wife on a text yeah. to your girlfriend. Then I read this interview in the paper saying, um, well, you know, we'd like to thank Andrew for being there for blah, blah, blah years and uh, sorry things didn't work out, but we'll hope whatever he moves on to. Basically, people started asking me, why did you leave? People asked me that up the last week. Why did you leave? And it's like, I didn't leave anything. They told me not to come back. The, the thing that really got me was that they led people to believe that I had decided I didn't want to do it anymore, so I left. I remember Jake sending a paper, well, the music he wants to play and the music we want to play is so different. In 1995, he met a woman online called Carol who lived in Rochester, Minnesota. They crossed the Atlantic to meet each other a couple of times, and finally Clooney moved out there in 1997, where he started playing in covers bands. Eventually he and Carol got married in 2009, and the same year he was asked to come back to the UK to tour with The Damned and The Alarm as a solo artist. He said in an interview with The Currents, Mark Wheat in 2019, I was like, I haven't played an original piece of music in 15 years. I thought, alright, I'd better put a set together. So I dug out inflammable material, go for it, and nobody's heroes. It was so strange because I hadn't heard them for so long. It was like, I don't remember this bit, or the changes to this. When I play now, it's only those three albums, because I think after that, it's not really still up fingers to me. Those first three albums were, were really good, really what I think Snipple Fingers was. In 
2013, he formed XSLF with former Stiff Little Fingers drummer Jim Riley and bassist Ave Sarian, in which they play a mix of original material, as well as Stiff Little Fingers songs that they originally wrote and performed on. In 2017, the band released the album Arup Bang, but since then Riley has stepped down due to health reasons and has been replaced on drums by Glenn Kingsmore, who used to play in another Belfast punk band, The Defects. Since Kingsmore joined, they have released a second album, North Star, in 2020. Clooney still lives in Rochester with Carol while touring frequently with his son David Clooney, who also plays the guitar. The trio of Burns, Foxton and Taylor continued with the recording of Get A Life at Ridge Farm Studios in Surrey throughout 1994. Early in the year, two singles were released, the title track, Get A Life, an almost six minute long song that opens with pan pipes and synths before settling into a slightly more bombastic song that sounds like they were taking notice of bands like U2. The second single, Can't Believe In You, is a much more stripped-back direct song that was the only one of the two to chart in February 1994 at number 97 on the UK Singles Chart. The album itself was eventually released on the 18th of October and also failed to chart. All Music's Ralph Hybutsky said Get A Life is one of the band's finest outings. The title track's material denunciation of apathy sets an appropriate back-to-basics tone. Topical pop-punk is the blueprint, with Burns slinging blasts against social complacency. In No Laughing Matter, police corruption in forensic evidence, anti-immigration bias on harp, and the end of communism on the night that the wall came down. Foxton plays an effective foil to Burns, while Taylor's unflagging rat-a-tat-tat keeps the proceedings taut and focused. The production is as crisp and business-like as the songs themselves. Solid melodies and performances enable Get A Life to outstrip the rickety material and execution that usually dogs most returning bands. In this respect, Stiff Little Fingers' story parallels that of Buzzcocks, who've aged equally well, even if the chart hits don't follow anymore. While touring the album, second guitar duties were filled either by Dave Sharp of The Alarm or solo artist Ian McCallum. He basically asked me if I wanted to go to France for a weekend of drinking. I was up for that, so I got to you know, learn, learn these tunes and I'll see you at the airport. McCallum took me at the word and got as drunk as he liked before we played the gig, which was not that clever. Um, so we played like three men and a dog on the end. We got back to the hotel and I ended up in the swim pool and I can't swim. I remember the poor girl coming running out from reception saying, please do not go in the pool this time right, I will lose my job. And this dripping wet McCallum went to the pool going, I you're all right love, it's a fucking shit job anyway. That was it, I was 
no longer in the band. We got in touch with another old friend, Dave Sharp, who was the guitar player with the alarm. He did six weeks with us. But at the time he was living in New Orleans and we were all based here and it was just, you know, a, a flight too far. Get a Life was released in the US in 1996 and by the end of that year, Taylor left the band due to family commitments. He'd been on the road so much. Uh, he missed his daughter growing up. He missed her first steps. We were in Los Angeles and she first took her first steps and stuff. And he'd just had a second kid. And he basically said to me, Look, I, I just don't want to miss this kid growing up. In 1997, he and ex-Jam and Stiff Little Fingers manager Russell Emanuel set up Extreme Music. The company composes and sells production music. The two of them had made a name for themselves by bringing in established artists to produce the music rather than hire semi-professionals. Extreme Music was pitched as a production music company that would up the industry ante by using professional recording equipment and top-notch musicians. Its ethos reflected that of its punk rock founders. For example, they mailed condoms to 1,000 music industry executives with packaging that read, Extreme Music, the only safe thing you'll ever get from us. With a focus on production, they intentionally limited the size of the company's catalogue. Through keeping the library's emphasis on quality rather than quantity, they streamlined the process of selecting music for advertising agencies and music supervisors, eventually building one of the most profitable production music libraries in the UK. In August 2005, Extreme Music was bought by Viacom for $45.1 million, and in 2008 it was then acquired by Sony ATV Music Publishing for an undisclosed sum. Extreme Music remains based in London, but in 2005 it expanded to include a production facility in Santa Monica, California. Additional offices were open globally, and over the years Extreme has built a library which contains approximately 15,000 original copyrights. Noting its size and the impact of using only high-quality music in the library, Emmanuel said, We're very surgical about what we put in the catalogue. Our biggest competition, who we outperform, have a million copyrights. In August 2013, Extreme partnered with composer Hans Zimmer and his business partner Steve Kofsky to found Bleeding Fingers Custom Music Shop. It focuses on creating original music for use in light television drama, documentaries, animated features, reality television and film schools. Emmanuel serves as the company's president and CEO. In 2017, Emmanuel produced the track Ocean Bloom, a collaboration between Zimmer and Radiohead for the BBC's Blue Planet 2.
To replace Taylor on drums, Burns called in Steve Grantley, who had failed an audition to join The Clash after the departure of Terry Chimes, but who had played drums in Jake Burns and the Big Wheel in the late 1980s. I got a message left on my answer phone saying, Steve, hi, it's Jake. Give us a quick call, would you, mate, when you've got five minutes? And in the interim, he'd, uh, he'd been in a band with Patsy Kensit. He played with Julian Lennon. There was no, you know, come and audition or, you know, come down. There's a few other guys who were in the frame. It was just, Steve, I want you to join Stiff Little Fingers. While playing in Stiff Little Fingers over the next few decades, Grantley also drummed for The Alarm, Alicia Keys, Julian Lennon and Eight Wonder and has written books about Slade and The Who. My first gig with Stiff Little Fingers was at the Barrowlands, and Jake had phoned me up and said, do you want to do a warm-up gig or something? And me being a flash gear, I went, nah, nah, I'll be all right, because I'd done arenas and that, I wasn't that bothered. And then I stood at the side of the stage, and, and then the intro tape started, and all the beer started, and there was like 3,000 jocks going fucking mental, and Jake looked at me and went, bet you wish you'd had a fucking warm-up now, and I was shitting myself. With the, the next album, Tinderbox, we just did as a three-piece. And, uh, but with a certain Mr. McCallum being invited back to do some singing. Jake called up and said, look, can, can you, if we asked you to come back in the band, can you behave yourself? Of course you can behave yourself. We brought him back on the express instruction that he didn't get himself thrown in any swimming pools and get any hotel receptionist sacked, he was allowed to stay. So, uh, he's been with us ever since. Released in July, it was the band's second album that failed to appear in the chart, and the first to produce no singles. In his 4 out of 5 review on AllMusic, Ralph Habutsky says, The pared down trio propels lean, mean blasts against global economics on You Never Hear the One That Hits You, Selfish Politicians on A River Flowing, and Sour Relationships in I Could Be Happy Yesterday. A more diverse approach prevails elsewhere. Glistening acoustic guitars underpin my ever-changing moral stance, which appears to slam the jam's mercurial frontman Paul Weller. It's impossible not to imagine Foxton cackling his encouragement. Jaunty horns power Foxton's vocal showcase, Dust In My Eye, and Irish instrumentation carries the two-part Roaring Boys, which Burns had earmarked for an aborted solo album. The biggest surprise is a churning, rubber-burning remake of The Message, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five's searing indictment of inner-city misery. It's a bold reminder of punk's affinity for black musical idioms. There are times when less is more, and this album is a shining example. When we finished the Tinderbox record, our then manager decided to move to doing other things. And suddenly, Jake and Bruce found themselves in a situation where there was no one to look after them. It wasn't the right time to manage ourselves because it had been thrust upon us rather than us taking the decision to do it. We eventually struck a deal to make the next record with EMI. It's interesting looking at that as our first record back with EMI as compared to our first record with Christmas when we held all the cards. Suddenly we held none of the cards. And yeah, it was a pretty humbling experience.
1998, Stiff Little Fingers went back into the studio to record their eighth album, Hope Street. This time, the band had grown back into a four-piece, as Ian McCullum had finally joined as a full-time member on second guitar. Hope Street was released on the 23rd of March 1999, with a second CD that, in the UK, was a 13-track Greatest Hits compilation entitled And Best of All. In the US, the second disc was a 10-track Live Greatest Hits album. The UK and US versions of the Hope Street album also have completely different track orderings. They had so much confidence in it, they said, well, we're going to put it out, but we'll put it out with a load of greatest hits just to cover our arses because we don't actually believe in this. We basically had to go along with it if we wanted to have a new album out because at the time, EMI didn't think that a new album by Stiff Little Fingers was viable. In the grand tradition of the band that refuses to die, it was like we saw it as a challenge rather than a slap in the face. It was like, nah, fuck them. We'll go out on tour, we'll fucking sell out everywhere and we'll show them that we're worth a second shot. Hope Street continued the more radio-friendly yet punk-edged sound that Stiff Little Fingers had been honing since reforming in the late 1980s. The songs on this album sound full-bodied with the addition of McCullum alongside Foxton's bass work and melodic backing vocals. Alt Culture Guide's Reverend Keith Gordon said in his 1999 review, Although the SLF guys tend to wear their myriad of influences on their collective sleeves at some places on Hope Street, I hear strains of Graham Parker, Midnight Oil and In Excess in these grooves to name but a few, they nonetheless work hard to imprint every familiar riff and inflection with their own identity. They've succeeded quite well. Hope Street represents a solid effort from a band that has defied the odds to crank out great music long after they were written off but all by their staunchest fans. All Music's Jack Rabbid adds in his 3.5 out of 5 review that Burns finally makes the best use of Bruce Foxton, who was born to play this sort of more post-punk ambitious stuff rather than straight punk. As well, the production is the best the group has enjoyed since now then, a surprisingly great pop record. Again though, like Tinderbox, and despite the, some might say, cynical edition of the Greatest Hits disc, Hope Street failed to bother the charts, and again produced no singles. Four years later, in 2003, Stiff Little Fingers released their ninth studio album, Guitar and Drum. So in 2003, when we came to make the guitar and drum record, we knew that we had, as I said, friends on the inside, because for that stage we'd made more than one. And we knew we had people in there who would battle and fight our corner. And while we were quite, weren't quite in the position that we could deliver what we wanted to and expect EMI to take it, that's pretty much how it finished up being. We made that record like it was our last. We honestly believed that this is probably going to be our last shot at making a, a major label album. The reason the album's called Guitar and Drums is because we decided that we'd done all this, you know, work with brass sections, we'd work with keyboard players, we'd work with backing singers, we'd done all the, the jiggery pokery you could do. 
So on that record, we decided, nah, fuck it, we're going to go right back to the first album. So much so that I didn't even do backing vocals because on the last couple of albums I've done lots of harmonies and all that stuff because I can do a bit of a sting and do all those high harmonies. But on this I said, look, let's just do it as we would do it on stage. If it's not played on a guitar, be it bass or lead guitar, rhythm guitar, whatever, if it's not hit on a fucking drum or it doesn't come out of our mouths, it doesn't go on the record. Let's just be the fucking tough fucking rock and roll band that we are on stage. And that's what I always wanted to recreate in the studio. And it's tough doing that, because you've got that option of putting this on and putting that on and overdubbing. But with that, we were very disciplined and kept it pared down to the bone. It is, once again, a mixture of old school punk songs with a pop tinge, with Byrne's voice able to handle both the sweet melodies on songs like Dead Man Walking, as well as the more ripping strains on songs like Empty Sky. The second track on the album, Strummerville, is a touching yet upbeat tribute to The Clash and Mescalero's frontman Joe Strummer, who had passed away unexpectedly the previous December. The basic truth of the matter is, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it if it wasn't for Joe Strummer. And, uh... So this is a song for Joe, this is called Strummerville. Once again, the album didn't break into the charts, and neither did its sole single, the title track, Guitar and Drum, which was released early in 2004 on MP3 only. As far as I'm concerned, it's probably the best record we've ever made. We were shocked at how good the response was and how good the reviews were and all that stuff, because we were used to getting trashed by Hugh and Mojo and all these people. And um, so when you get a good review, you go, you have to read it again. You go, ah, they like it. All Music's Stephen Schnee said in his four out of five star review, still as energetic as they've always been, Stiff Little Fingers remain true to their original sound, although the punk edge has softened a bit, by age perhaps. The distinctive guitar sound of the band fuels every song, with even more interplay than usual. By the time the acoustic Protect and Serve finishes up the album, you'll be ready to hear it again. They've released some fine albums over the last decade, but this is hands down the best SLF in 20 years. In another positive review in Lollipop magazine, Grady Gadbo said, some of the songs might be a bit too catchy in a goofy pop sort of way, but on the whole it's solid rock. There's no point bitching if the new album doesn't sound as raw and pissed off as inflammable material. That was 25 years ago, and this is a new record from a working band keeping it real. The veteran level of experience shows clearly in the songwriting. Never far from good old rock and roll, the two guitar, three vocal layered attack is classic and masterful, with tributes to The Clash and Motorhead, delivered in the true style and form of the originals. Mind you, I don't mean covers, but real tributes in the literary sense of the word. Jake Byrne's voice is amazing. Sure, he can growl and shred if he wants to, but more than most rockers, he can really sing. He's like a punk rock Paul McCartney. Punknews.org and Crud Magazine both concurred in their own reviews, which also scored guitar and drum at four stars out of five. Up on my bed.
As well as relocating to Chicago in 2004, between 2001 and 2005, while writing, recording and touring with Stiff Little Fingers, Burns was also playing in a side project with Pauline Black of The Selector, called Three Men in Black. But when I switch on, I rotate the this involved Black touring with three male artists from the late 1970s and early 1980s, doing acoustic versions of songs they're famous for, and talking a little about how they came to write the songs. The lineup for the concerts was fluid and included musicians including Bruce Foxton, JJ Burnell of The Stranglers, Eric Faulkner of The Bay City Rollers, and Nick Welsh, who had played in The Selector, Bad Manners, Scarville UK, The Two Tone Collective, Big Five, and now tours as King Hammond. Well, promoting guitar and drum was a, a, a massive, daunting project, and I think it started to take its toll on everybody. We had tantrums, we had fights, and it started to get back to what it was like before the now then breakup. Just simply through pressure of work. When we got to the end of that year, uh, Bruce let, let it be known to me that he'd kind of had enough, he just wasn't willing to work like that. On the 18th of January 2006, Foxton left Stiff Little Fingers and formed the mod band Casbar Club with Simon Townsend, brother of the Who's Pete Townsend, and Mark Brzezicki and Bruce Watson of Big Country, and this band went on tour supporting the Who. The next year, Foxton left Casbar Club to join former jam drummer Rick Buckler's band The Gift, which promptly rebranded as From The Jam a band that still tours to this day, although Buckler stopped playing with them in 2009, stating he feared becoming a tribute act. The only shows Buckler has played since were with a short-lived two-drummer lineup of a band called If, with members of Sham 69 in 2011. Foxton continues to play in From the Jam. Who do you get to replace a bass player as good as that? I had one geezer in mind, and that was Ali McMordy. And as far as I was concerned, he was the only man who could do the job. I only phoned up saying, do you want to come back and do one tour? Well, we still haven't got rid of him. He's been gone for 20 years, and those 20 years have just disappeared. It's like he's always been there. On the 23rd of January 2006, original bassist Ali McMordy rejoined Stiff Little Fingers for the duration of their upcoming tour that March. The tour was a success, with many fans writing on Stiff Little Fingers' message board saying how much they enjoyed it and how fired up the band seemed to be. Right after the tour on the 27th of March, Burns released a solo album entitled Drinkin' Again. Far from being a punk album, it includes a few reworked versions of his previous songs, covers and traditional songs, as well as some new compositions in a mix of traditional Irish folk and American country. The album opens with a cover of the Van Morrison song Domino, which sees Burns crooning in the same style as Van. The title track is more of a rabble-rousing drinking song, but this time with a more gravelly-throated vocal performance. 
As a fan of folk music as well as punk, this album is right up my street. But if you're not that way inclined, it may not hit home for you. But I love it. On the 9th of March 2007, Burns announced that Stiff Little Fingers would record its 10th album, which would be released by the end of the year. New songs Liars Club and My Dark Places were added to the band's set list at live shows that year, however the album was far from being finished. In 2009, Burns formed a punk rock supergroup called the Nefarious Fat Cats to raise money for local charities in his adopted city of Chicago. The lineup was made up of members from bands including Naked Raygun, Pegboy, and Rise Against, amongst others. In 2011, Burns formed another punk supergroup called the Black Sheep Band, which recorded a track for a charity record for Children's Memorial Hospital called A Chicago Punk Rock Collaboration for the Kids Volume 1. This band featured members of Screeching Weasel, Naked Raygun, The Methadones and more. At a Stiff Little Fingers gig at Glasgow Barrowlands on the 17th of March 2011, Burns said that the band's new album was actually being recorded and that hopefully it would be released later that year before launching into a new song, Full Steam Backwards, which was about the banking crisis in the UK. On the 16th of October 2013, the band launched a project on the now defunct crowdfunding site Pledge Music to raise funds to make the album. The project reached its funding goal within five hours, showing that even after 35 years, they still had a loyal fan base who wanted to hear new material and were motivated enough to put their money where their mouths were. Finally, after 11 years since Guitar and Drum came out, recording was completed on the new album on the 25th of January 2014. The fans are able to buy the album in various forms, such as MP3 downloads, CD, deluxe versions, along with various other items, including autographed copies of the album and set lists. Part of the money raised for the recording was donated to the Integrated Education Fund, a charity in Northern Ireland which aims to support the growth of integrated schools which cross cultural and religious barriers. The band held an online listening party of the album for the fans who'd signed up to pledge on the 22nd of February. The album, entitled No Going Back, was released through Pledge Music on the 15th of March and to the general public on the 11th of August. The band held an album release party on the March release date at the Queen's Hall Nuneaton, where the album was played in full and the band performed some of the songs from it. A tour to promote the album began in early 2014 and included dates in the US on the Summer Nationals tour with The Offspring, Bad Religion, The Vandals, Pennywise and Naked Raygun. PunkNews.org's Rich Coxedge said in his 4.5 star out of 5 review that it has to be said that it's a very good album indeed. 
He particularly singled out the return of McMordy as a highlight on the song Full Steam Backwards, saying, As good as Bruce Foxton was in the band, no one can hold a candle to McMordy when it comes to laying down bass lines, and whose return to the band seems to have had a massive impact. Despite the members of the band being long in the tooth, there's no lack of passion throughout this album, with targets being the banking institutions, selfishness and record labels and managers amongst others, each one deservedly chosen. Louder Than War's Dave Jennings said no going back is exactly what you would want and expect from SLF, with no shortage of air-punching anthems and truths told. It's a great album, and we can only hope that the next album follows up as soon as. Record Collector Magazine's Tim Peacock gave the album 4 out of 5, stating that No Going Back frequently competes with SLF at their bellicose best. The withering anti-establishment Liars Club and Full Speed Backwards Furious Bank and Collapse Critique are both vintage blasts of melodic angst, while the heartfelt My Dark Places allows Jake Burns the opportunity to address his ongoing battle against depression with a disarming frankness. Admittedly, the album rarely deviates from the band's patented punk-pop path, but SLF nonetheless walk their well-trodden way with commitment and heart throughout. Guilty as Sin's hard-hitting Celtic folk-flavoured tale of clerical abuse, however, shows that they can also throw a well-aimed stylistic curveball should the inspiration strike. Pop Matters' Sean Robertson gave the album a 5-star rating, saying, Admittedly, No Going Back is not quite as punk as it's packaged. Musically, it's an unquestionable feast of hearty rock robustness. It's only in its intentions, in its message, in its lyrics, that we witness the gutsy defiance of a band that haven't quite outgrown their rebellious youth. Amidst the virtually universal praise of the album, No Going Back became Stiff Little Finger's first album to chart since 1994's Get A Life, reaching number 28 on the UK album chart, and becoming their first number one record on the BBC Rock album chart. During the constant touring that Stiff Little Fingers continues to undertake, in 2016 Burns joined an acoustic supergroup called Dead Men Walking, formed by Kirk Brandon of Spear of Destiny, and also included David Ruffy and John Seggs Jennings of Ruts DC. Burns says one of his favourite gigs was a homecoming show at Custom House Square in Belfast in 2017. He said, We wanted to mark the 40th anniversary of the band with something special in our hometown. We looked into the possibility of doing a free concert in the city, but it turns out that to do a free concert on the scale we were proposing actually costs around £200,000, so that idea bit the dust. But we pulled together a show with some good friends from over the years, The Stranglers, Ruts DC and The Outcasts, our compatriots from way back in the day. Walking out that night in front of 5,000 people in my hometown to a wonderful welcome is something I'll remember for the rest of my days. If that sounds emotional and sappy, I don't apologise for that one bit. 
Even after almost 45 years, Stiff Little Fingers songs continue to inspire fans old and new, with the band saying that countless people contact Jake to say that My Dark Places from No Going Back gave them the strength to tell others about their own battles with depression. I wrote the song just basically as, as a, it was a coping mechanism for me when I wrote it. I, basically put, I just put down everything that I felt. It was more to remind myself that, you know, you've gotten through this before, there's no reason why you shouldn't get through it again. And it became, kind of became a song. With regards to coping mechanisms, I think everybody, everybody has to find their own really. I mean, you know, I, I, I went to see a therapist and stuff about it and, um, you know, he was suggesting uh, pills and I, I really didn't want to take pills and I know they work for a lot of people and if they work for you that's great. The reason I didn't want to take them was because it just kind of felt a bit like, it felt to me a bit like sort of, you know, if you wake up with a hangover and you go and grab a beer to try and make yourself feel better. I didn't feel like I was tackling the problem, I was just postponing it a bit, you know. So I thought, I'm, no, I'm going to try and you know, just work my way through this. And bizarrely the things I found, that, well first of all I threw myself completely into my work, which I think a lot of people do. And that worked for a while until of course, you know, my work being sort of mainly touring, you find yourself 3,000 miles from home and all alone in a tiny little room like this and, and before you know it you're like, oh God. That wasn't a, a cure-all. I don't think anything's a cure-all. The, the other thing surprisingly I found that worked, and I say surprisingly because all my life I've been the laziest guy I know. Um, I hated any sort of physical exertion, I hate any sort of physical exercise or whatever. And yet bizarrely I find I find buying a bicycle and going riding, I lived in, lived in Chicago close to the lake at the time, riding along the lakefront just for a couple of hours and now we've moved so I, I ride through the park. But just that, just getting away from my surroundings, getting out into the fresh air and actually bizarrely physical exercise gave me, I'm not saying it, it sort of gave me a high but it, 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 it concentrated my mind away from, and, and I find you know by the time I came home um, I, I felt a lot better. It you know, doesn't work every time, but it works more times than not. In fact, Stiff Little Fingers find themselves more in demand than ever and are still touring worldwide with a rescheduled UK tour slated to start in March 2022 after being postponed by a year due to the Covid pandemic. We've started uh, writing um, the, the, the trouble is, uh, again, the, the kind of the, the album's success took us all a bit by surprise. So we've been pretty much touring constantly since it came out, and uh, it, it's more a case of trying to find a break in the touring schedule to actually write. You know, because I'm not one of those people that can that can write on tour. I've got friends who can do that, and I'm hugely jealous of it. But you know, I'm not sure that the people who are in the hotel room next to me want to hear me banging away on a guitar at two in the morning when they're trying to sleep. Burns hinted in the Spin interview from 2021 that there's no immediate plans to stop. Like everyone, my immediate concern is for this pandemic to be over, and for us all to be able to safely get back to work and some sort of normal as soon as possible. Obviously at this stage of my life, I'm 62, retirement gets mentioned. It's not something I've really thought of. I guess as long as I feel reasonably youthful, and I still foolishly do even if my knees occasionally tell me otherwise. And as long as there's an audience for what we do, and we still enjoy what we do, then we'll keep doing it. I think, you know, it's one of those things, I mean, we're, we're all getting to the stage, you know, Stiff Little Fingers have been around for over 40 years now, so none of us are getting any younger. I mean, not that it gets that much harder to do what we do, but obviously, you know, it, 
there comes a point where you start thinking, I'm start, am I beginning to look a bit foolish here? I'm like, I'm in, I'm over 60 years old. Am I starting to look a bit foolish jumping up and down and playing an electric guitar? So, you know, you, you sort of lean then towards, well, you know, maybe maybe you can go down the route that the old blues guys did, you know, when they got into their, their later years and they had, you know, they would sit on stools with acoustic guitars and tell stories. And, you know, and so, you know, I could maybe become, you know, that was actually one of the things was my wife and I were talking about it. I said, you know, maybe in my later years I can become like, you know, I don't know, moaning Jake Burns or hurting Jake. <laughs> she said, no, nah, not really. She said, you're more complaining. So I said, okay, well, complaining Jake Burns then. That's what I'll be when I get older. So, a 50th anniversary tour in the future? Fingers crossed. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time. your kitchen the upgrade it deserves with clearview cabinetry clearview cabinetry starts as a kitchen built for now and grows with you as life changes it's flexible by design with full access cabinet construction so you can go from doors to drawers for storage that works when you need it get an appointment free design consultation and explore all our cabinet options on display in our kitchen showroom and save big money now at menards save big money at It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.